Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Everyone, um, really good to be with you. I, uh, I love it when people are giving up a Saturday morning, and uh, you know, just before Christmas as well, when you've got so much to be doing, and uh, just here to look into God's Word. And um, I, I love the title that uh, Tom's put for this morning's the two sessions together. It's all about Jesus. Uh, and I think, wow, that's, uh, that's a great, great start. All about Jesus. And so um, I just love it when people come together and want to um, study, use their minds, and actually love the Lord with all their minds. And um, I, I just really pray, just of driving down on the motorway, living in West Lancashire, but just driving down on the motorway, just praying that today really becomes for all of us, for myself and for everyone in this room, an act of worship. Um, that we are loving the Lord with all our minds. We're exercising our gray cells a little bit, maybe, especially when we come on to the Christology, looking at the person of Christ and uh, looking at terms like the hypostatic union, how Jesus is up two natures in one person, you know, these sort of things. Hopefully, it'll blow our minds and get gray cells working, and we won't fully understand it, uh, but we will come to just love God more with all our minds and that's what we want so let's just pray shall we that, that that's what happens this morning Lord Lord I just say thank you uh, for this opportunity of being together with your people uh, your sons and daughters as we gather together and we say we want to look into your word and we say Holy Spirit will you come and will you uh, help us um, you are called the helper and will you help us today we say we're, we're just so conscious of the fact that we need your help uh, to understand the truths of your word to understand even the, the formatting of your word if we can call it that and we just pray that you will help us this morning uh, as we look into your word and we say just as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices this morning to you in what we're doing and what we're giving our time to that your fire will fall and, and, and we will know your presence in a very, very real way. We just ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I, 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 just that whole thing of the fire falling where there's living sacrifices. I, I just love it when people give themselves to studying God's word. And, um, and I just think, you know, the fire of the spirit can fall uh, where we're just open uh, to just that, 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 that giving of ourselves and I love sometimes just to be caught in the collateral damage <laughs> of, of just the fire of God falling so um, yeah, let, let's, so we've got two sessions um, I presume that's what you're expecting two sessions the first one looking at Paul's letters and some of Paul's life and then the second half after a coffee break we'll look into the person of Christ, Christology, talking about Jesus. So let's get started straight away and say it's all about Jesus. Um, we want our lives to point to Jesus. Paul's life certainly pointed to Jesus and he wrote letters. Um, hands up anybody who's had a 
handwritten, I'm not talking emails, I'm talking a handwritten letter in the last month. Nobody. Oh, just a thank you note. A thank you note. Does it count? Thank you note. How many words was it? About 30 or 40. 30 or 40. Yeah, it's not a letter. <laughs> so a thank you note. You're definitely right. Yeah, another hand up. I got a letter from. So my, I am from Argentina, I got it from my mom. <laughs> Your mom, Matthias's mom wrote him a letter. Matthew's mom sent a letter from all the way from Argentina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. see that's, that's great. How many words was it? Um, How many pages? It was one page. One page, okay. A bit like, yeah, okay, short, short. Back, go back in time and you think, oh, this is bad. We don't get letters. The art of letter writing is a dying form. Pre, in, go back to that Greek, Roman world that Paul lived in and private letters sent from one person to another wasn't uh, as common as we might think it was and um, the average letter written in Paul's day so I'm told averaged around about 90 words in length so it was almost a note um, just 90 words longer literary letters like, uh, you know, Cicero, the Roman orator, and the Greek philosopher Seneca. You think, wow, they're going to write big letters, aren't they? Long letters. They average around about 200 words. Um, and uh, the, the, what you've got to understand, they didn't got, hadn't got keyboards and laptops and so on, but they were writing on sort of uh, papyrus writing sheets, which were difficult to write on. And they were thick, you know, parchments and, and, and difficult to write on. But the average length of Paul's letters, the median perhaps we should call it, um, is by contrast, we're talking about 200 words for sort of philosophers and, and so on. But Paul's ones, the average, you take all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, the average length is 1,300 words. And um, the shortest note he wrote was to Philemon. That was 335 words. And to Epistle to the Romans was 7,101 words. So Paul um, was the instigator of a new literary form and uh, the epistle. It hadn't been done before. So it's Paul was the one who, who sort of invented, if you like, the, the epistle. And um, it, it's, uh, you know, it was different because it was sort of contains, it had a sort of theological um, content and it was, the, it was addressed uh, often, not always, but often addressed to communities and sort of this communal nature to it. And so, uh, because, as I said, there was this coarse grain of the papyrus that you had to write on, meant it was, it was difficult to write, uh, you wouldn't often get the person writing the letter themselves. They'd employ someone called an amanuensis, uh, a, a person who would be the scribe and do the writing for you. And, and so that professional scribe would do the writing and he'd take down the letter in some sort of shorthand because it would take a long time to write every word and then when he'd finished um, you know Paul would be talking the amanuensis would write it all down in shorthand then when Paul had finished talking 
the amanuensis would go and write it all up and present it to Paul to check through that it was okay and then the write the, 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 the author Paul in that, what we're talking about today would then put usually put some sort of personal note on at the end in his own hand and you get that in Paul's letters it makes it obvious at point so that was how Paul did it and um, Sometimes we're told who the amanuensis is, for example, in the, the epistle to Romans, which we're not looking at today. We're not looking at uh, one Romans 1, 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, because that's coming up in your course later on. But, but like for, for Romans, it was Tertius, was the, we know that from Romans 16, 22, who, who wrote it down. And, um, and Paul, as in 1 Corinthians 16, 21, Galatians 6, 11, Colossians 4, you've got it in the notes, I think, there. The, the, you know, he, he puts his own little comment on at the end. Uh, the only letter that he wrote completely himself, all his own work, <laughs> was Philemon, the shortest one. And uh, he, he managed to do that one, on, all, all on his own. But the others he had to use in amanuensis. Now, the fact that these um, foundation, what for us as we're looking at this morning, these foundation elements of the Christian faith are found in letter form is really interesting because it makes it unique. You look at all the world religions and you don't get what people actually, the, the tenets of the, you know, the basic doctrine of the faith, found in letters. This is really interesting that you find it in letters. Um, you see, the church communities, um, once they were established, as there was this church planting going on at a rapid rate, uh, they needed instruction in a form more permanent than the, the spoken teaching which they'd been founded upon. They didn't have Bibles when they, when they were, you know, they just didn't have them. And so um, it was all spoken, it was oral. I worked in um, uh, what's now called the Democratic Republic of Congo for 10 years in the 1980s. And during those first five years I was there, 1980 to 1985, there was a, a move of God and there was in a non-literary uh, environment that people couldn't read, you know, people were mainly illiterate or semi-literate at best. It was a very rural part of Congo. It was amazing to see just how rapidly churches were opening and growing without the Bible. <laughs> Why are we bothering what we're doing here this morning? Well, it, it, it soon became apparent that they needed something. You know, you've got churches, you've got people leading churches who not, hadn't got the Bible in their own language often. And so um, all of them hadn't got the Bible in the language where I was working. And, and so it was that sort of situation back then. Rapid church growth, no no, 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 no Bible. Uh, no, no. So, so, so Paul wrote these letters, and um, but what we believe, come on, you new frontiers people, aren't you? Believe in a sovereign God? Yes. Yeah. What we believe in God's sovereign grace uh, and goodness. Um, you know, the letters met that need and provided something. But what they weren't 
all right, was um, they weren't what formed later on creeds and councils meeting together to write out creeds. Initially, in this very raw state of the thriving church, very primitive church, it, it, what they weren't was like people coming together. Now, let's work out, let's do a sort of a, a Wayne Grudem or a Louis Burkhoff or a, uh, you know, Erickson, the systematic theologies. Let's write a tome. This is what you need to believe. I used to be many, many years ago in the Assemblies of God, and there was a doctrinal statement this is what you believe and many denominations have them the church of england doesn't i don't think new frontiers does that you don't have like a doctrine no no tom's shaking his head um the rest of you don't seem to know <laughs> uh, but 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 listen this letter writing form what's What's it all about? It means that there were things being worked out. There was a theological task going on in that primitive church um, with churches blossoming in different areas, in Gentile areas, in, in, in the Jewish areas as well. They were, they, were, they were all having to work on a theological task of what is this that we've got engaged in? What do we believe? How do we live? What's going on here? And the letter form meant there was a freedom of expression that would have been impossible in some dry doctrinal statements. There's life, as we're going to see this morning, there's life in these letters, there's real nitty-gritty situations, there's troubles, there's things going on. There, sometimes there's, there's doctrines that are formed as the creeds, all the creeds, the, the, you know, the early church's creeds were, doctrines that are formed to counter heresy. Um, and so an orthodox, if we can call it that, an orthodox Christian faith emerges from the, from the, the, the turmoil and the turbulence of people, two women not getting on well together, of some man being proud about his sexual immorality in the church, of somebody not being honest, somebody not being very somebody being very lazy, somebody telling somebody else over tea and coffee after the service, actually, you do need to do this if you want to be saved because what you're doing at the moment isn't enough and little things being added to the gospel, as we can see. And all this turmoil on top of it. So there were men carried along by the Spirit of God, um, who began to put things down on paper, writing letters to help these churches from a fatherly, um, you know, a parental love for the people of God, wanting to see something happen. And so these letters, it was in that sort of, had a freedom in the language, and um, very personalised uh, language, and, and very real and so as Christians, what we have is not some, you know, these are the sayings of so-and-so and this is what we must believe, one, two, three, four, five. What we have is real-life situations that we can turn to as, as we also continue today the theological task. It isn't over. There are things that we're having to work out as believers today that previous generations didn't have to work out. Um, there's things that we, you know, we face in society today. We don't find all the answers in the Bible. Let me explain what I mean by that. N.T. Wright, this isn't in your notes, this bit, but N.T. Wright um, puts it beautifully, and he says, imagine you've got a 
you know, uh, a new a play written by Shakespeare is you've got this group of Shakespearean actors who are used to performing Shakespeare plays. They, they work for the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon or something. They're so used to working out all uh, of, of, of you know, how Shakespeare works and all his plays. And then suddenly, and each Shakespeare play is five acts, then suddenly they discover a new Shakespeare play that's been found in some... Dead Sea Scroll, no, that's getting mixed up. But they, they find some, some, some Shakespeare play that's just four acts, and the final act, Shakespeare must have died before it was written. So you've got the four acts, the fifth act is not written yet. How do they cope with performing this play? Well, they have to rely on all the other stuff that they've worked out to, to, to write themselves the fifth act and perform it. And in a way, what we have in Scripture and in the, the early church, you know, what, what, what they had is even more, you, you begin to look at what we have to work out how we continue today. Does that make sense? Um, so let's get into um, you know some of these epistles. We've got the, the the Pauline epistles, not Pauline's epistles, the Pauline epistles, um, and you've got the, the, the so. Uh, the 13 out of 21 letters in the New Testament um, 9 of the letters are addressed to 7 Gentile churches in Rome, Corinth to Ephesus which we're not doing today Galatia, Philippa, Colossae and Thessalonica to um, which we will be doing those ones today um, 4 letters are addressed to individuals, Timothy got two, and then one each to Titus and Philemon. Um, so, before we look at the letters, just remind ourselves of the life of Paul a little bit. You've already done Acts 1-8. to um, So, very quickly, can someone tell me about, what can you say about the youth, anything, youth and conversion of Paul? Well educated in Judaism. Well educated in Judaism, yeah. Can anyone remember who his teacher was? Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Top notch teacher. So you've got Paul uh, there, um, you know, got this fantastic teacher, and he was pretty, you know, a rising star, wasn't he, in Judaism. He was one, mark him, is going to go far, that boy, is doing really well. Top-notch teacher in, in Gamaliel, uh, that rabbi. And what else can we say about, anything else about his Acts 1-8, to what we can say about he was a Roman citizen, that's right. He was born in Tarsus, Tarsus yeah, and uh, Saul of Tarsus, Roman citizen. And um, yeah, so he'd got that going for him. So he'd got these two things, hadn't he, going for him. He was top-notch teacher, Gamaliel, uh, but born a Roman citizen. So if you like, this sort of Jewish-Roman world sort of coincided in Paul in, in, a, in a good way for him, which we know he used to, you know, to, to, to think. But as, as, as he, he became, wasn't it, incredibly zealous for the law and was a Pharisee and was there, wasn't he, at the stoning of Stephen, and uh, we just know he was really, um, you know, just going on like this and, and using, you know, all this stuff that he had. What I find interesting is, is we're going to see today, all of that was useful for him and God used it as he carried on. 
question for you just to consider is what is there in your past um, that you might think well, wasn't really helpful actually God can use for his glory um, you know and God can use things in your past life you know you might think I'm just such an expert Paul was an expert in the Jewish law you might think I'm an expert in I know what it's like to feel down and depressed and miserable I'm an expert in that um, how can God use that um, you know have a think about it what was it what sort of things even things that you might not want to talk to people about but God can use those things um, for his glory so Paul Following his conversion on the road to Damascus, that, um, you know, he, he spent three years, we know he spent three years in uh, Arabia uh, and Damascus. You can read that in Galatians 1, 17 to 18. After which somebody came along, who was it? Some, the apostle of encouragement, Barnabas, came along and introduced him to the apostles in Jerusalem. And um, just think, you know, I, I, I just think, wow, doesn't the church need more Barnabases around? Just those encouragers, those who sort of spot the ones that nobody else seems to bother about, no one else is interested in. I just think it's interesting to watch, and I can say this because I'm not in any of your churches on a Sunday morning, but who do you spend time talking to, <laughs> you know, when it's tea and coffee time or before the service? Is it just you huddle into your group of friends or do you find someone nobody else is really interested in and actually spend a little bit of time talking to them, asking them questions about themselves, asking them what they've been doing this last week or whatever and I think you know God give us this this gift of encouragement um, you know it's something I think the church especially post lockdown we're in just churches in desperate need of Barnabas type encouragers uh, in, in the church but here we are Barnabas introduces him so uh, Paul to to um, to the other apostles and um, and so he, he spends time in um, there and uh, in Jerusalem, um, but then he's forced to leave Jerusalem, um, and he spends the next ten years because there's a plot against him, and he spends the next ten years in Cilicia and Syria, uh, mainly in the towns of Tarsus and Antioch. And I've got, I think you've got the references in the notes there, haven't you? And once news of the gospel's arrival in Antioch reached Jerusalem, Barnabas was sent to visit the new church there. And he brought Saul from Tarsus to work with him for about a year, establishing the new Christians. You can read that in Acts 11. And so then Paul and Barnabas brought an offering, this, this famous offering that they brought to the famine-stricken church in Judea. They go back, in, you can read about that in Acts 11. And then, with the laying on of hands, apostles and prophets in the church there set apart Paul and Barnabas for apostolic ministry, for a church planting um, you know, uh, apostolic ministry, and they're sent on their journeys. And so... The missionary journeys, look at the backs of your Bible, we're referring to them as we go along, but you've got your maps in the backs of your Bible there. Um, but then when he's in Jerusalem, uh, where Paul had gone with an offering for the poor, the Judaizers, these are the people that are still wanting to hold on to um, the vestiges of the old covenant uh, religion that they had. They accused him of violating the temple 
and, and they stir up a riot. Um, just amazing what happens when uh, you know, you're just doing the will of God. But they stirred up a riot. And as a result of this, he found himself in custody for two years in Caesarea. Acts 24. And, and Paul defends himself. You just find him sort of seemingly locked up, seemingly uh, hedges put around him. And he, he, he defended himself against the Roman governor Felix, and then Felix's replacement, Festus, and King Herod of Agrippa. And to protect himself from the Jews, because they were out to get him, remember, and ambush him, um, he appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And so this is where some of his past comes in, and he was dispatched to Rome. And in Rome, Acts 24 you know, to 28, we read about this. He was under house arrest for two years before being released to travel to places mentioned in many of his letters. Um, you've got them you know, there in the notes, Caesarea, Crete, Asia, Macedonia, Greece, and Spain, um, eventually. He was, he was finally put back in prison again, um, reincarcerated in Rome, and executed under Emperor Nero in 67 or 68 AD. Um, now, I put just in your sort of tables where you are, or you know, get into threes or fours or whatever you do, um, but just have a look at this together. So the Paul's house arrest in Rome, just thinking about that. We're going to go on to the letters very soon, but, but just Paul's house arrest in Rome. Just have a think about this. Um, it didn't stop him from propagating the gospel, from spreading the gospel. And uh, I've given you some passages to look up, and Acts just describes his activities under house arrest, and just what I'd love you to do is just have a look at that, and in your table just summarise really, uh, what was he teaching the Jews, what was he teaching the Gentiles? Um, so have a look at Acts 28, the verses are put there, 17, 23 to 28, and Acts 28, 30 to 31. Um, and you've all got sort of handouts either online or sort of in you printed them off. Do you want me to say those verses again for those elements? So look at Acts 28, 17 and 23 to 28 and say what was he, what was he teaching the Jews? And Acts 28, 30 to 31, what was he teaching the Gentiles? And um, just as you're doing that, coming back to this point I was challenging you on, I suppose, is how God might use your past. And um, so, you know, have a look at those then. Um, and just look them up and say, in, in, in your table, say, what was he teaching the Jews? What was his main point for teaching the Jews? What was his main point for teaching the Gentiles? Okay, have we have we just worked out then? Uh, it's not not a trick question. It's as easy as it looks, really. Um, but what what, did, what was he what was he doing? What was he doing for the Jews? What was he doing to the Jews? That doesn't sound right. What was he? What was his point? What was he teaching the Jews? What was he his main task with the Jews? That first set of giving them their history and the fact that he knew the law and explaining it. Yep, thank you. Yep. Yep, that's, it's just for the Jews, it's saying, look, this is the law, um, and, um, but he's going on to do more than that, isn't he? He's, he's going, he explained to them 
What, what was it? Yep, I mean, the law is so important to that sort of baggage, if you like, that they had, that, that um, covenantal baggage that they had, which the Gentiles clearly didn't have in the same way, although they had their own baggage. But the, he explains to them, you know, from the point of view of the law, he brings into them, he sort of takes, shows them how it's transformed. And, uh, and so what, what's the key phrase in those verses then, would you say, was the thing that, um, remembering the title of this morning's... It's all about Jesus. Thank you, Matthias. Yes, Jesus is always the answer, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he, in verse, that's right. In, in, in um, which verse is it? Verse 23, it says, isn't it? Explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. Listen, you Jews, you've got to understand this. The kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. It, it, don't want to jump ahead of ourselves after coffee. We're going to be looking at how you know Christology and how Jesus is in the Old Testament, but we'll we'll see that a bit later on. But he explains to them from the law and prophets about Jesus. He's in the law. You find him there all the way through. Um, okay, thanks. That's to the Jews. We need to keep moving to the Gentiles. What did he preach? That to, what did what did he tell them about? Yeah, again, same answer. Yeah, preach to them the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got Paul, this sort of slight difference, isn't there, in the way it is to the Jews, um, it's from the law and from the prophets to the Gentiles. I just want to tell you about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. And it's a challenge to us, isn't it, in our sort of reaching out in our mission of the church is what do we do? Um, you know, is emulate Paul would be wonderful wouldn't it let's tell people about Jesus let's tell people about the kingdom of God in different ways so let's jump in now because we want to get started on these letters we're going to go through the letters of Paul um, you know there's a standard form as in the first century sort of sender's name and, and their office come first name of the recipient and a general greeting and then the main body of a letter which is concluded with a closing greeting and sending of good wishes that was the standard format and Paul's letters follow that in the New Testament that we have um, you know, in a fairly modern way they're, they're, they're arranged in descending order of length rather than chronologically um, so you start with Romans, which is the long, which we're not looking at today. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the longest letters start first. And then you finish with the shortest letter, Philemon. So it's descend, uh, uh, starting with the longest letters first, going down in lengthwise. Um, I put in your notes a table, which is easy to find on the internet. I just thought it was the best way to do it. Um, shows the order in which it's believed they were written, the chronological order and the times that they were written. Um, so on his first journey, you've got Galatians was written. On his second journey, you've got little in the far column, you've got some of the things that were happening at that time. You've got it, you know, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians on his second journey. On his third journey, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and Romans. And then on the second table, 
we're going on to his when he was in prison probably with one chain on his first imprisonment not two chains but one chain his first Roman imprisonment you've got Ephesians Philippians Colossians and Philemon and then after Acts he writes 1 Timothy and Titus and then back on his second imprisonment he writes 2 Timothy just as, I put in the, as it's put in the thing there, I'm going to die to carry the torch. Um, so those are, like, if you like, the tables that just show um, you know, the order that they're written. The way we're going to look at them this morning, just so that we cover some of the main ones first before we go for coffee, is we're going to look at the, 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 you know, the order in which they appear in the New Testament. Um, we're not, you, you can look at them, other people will put them in journey letters, prison letters, pastoral letters. But we're just going to look at them in the order that they appear in the New Testament. So we're starting off not Romans and Corinthians because you're doing that another week but we're going to start off looking at Galatians and I quite like it that we're doing it this way because we will end up rushing at the end I know and we won't cover them all but you've got quite lengthy notes but really Galatians is such an important um, epistle and I believe it's relevant for us today um, Sidlow Baxter uh, just a classic book of his if you've not got it it's a really helpful one for just for getting a bible overview someone might have already recommended it to you but explore the book uh, by J. Sidlow Baxter uh, he said this he said um, Christians should read Romans to be grounded in Christian doctrine read Corinthians to be grounded in Christian practice and read Galatians to be guarded against deceptive error and uh, Galatians is like red lights flashing be careful watch how you live because error can come into your thinking um, and this is what is at the heart of Paul's letter to Galatians uh, the church had embraced the church in Galatia had embraced a subtle perversion of the gospel and Paul writes the epistle to the Galatians because things are going on in the church in Galatia that shouldn't be going on. It's contrary to the gospel. It's not minor issues. It's something that's crept into the church that is a major issue. And Paul loves the Galatians and um, he feels at times for them as if he's like about to have a baby. <laughs> he says, I'm in the pains of childbirth because I'm just longing for Christ to be formed in you. But it's not going to happen the way you're behaving at the moment. And because you've started to believe in your heart things that are wrong, it's going to affect the way you live and you're going to miss out on that freedom, that joy, that liberty, that wonder of Christ growing in you, of Christ being formed in you. Now, background uh, to Galatians is that it's the only letter Paul specifically addresses to several churches in an area, Galatia. Galatia wasn't a town, Galatia was a region. And um, it contains several sizable towns. And the Galatians, it's funny, they were a people of Celtic origin, uh, we're told who'd migrated from Gaul, France, uh, into Asia Minor, uh, you know, modern Turkey. So prior to 25 BC, 
Galatia was the region in the north central Turkey, in north central Turkey, where this ethnic group lived, the only region where they lived. After this state, while the whole area came under Roman domination, the Romans established a province called Galatia, uh, but it extended further south, you know, towns such as Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, which you read about in the Acts of the Apostles. And so uh, Paul, when he talks about Galatia, um, you know, is it, it, talking about a whole region. And he's writing, uh, most likely writing, to the Roman province of Galatia, uh, an area from Syrian Antioch. Uh, and Paul, um, in, where Paul's home base was, sort of AD 48-49, just before the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Um, so looking at the overview of Galatians, um, so most of the early believers in Galatia were of Jewish origin um, and they carried on, you know when Paul, his practice was he would go into a synagogue to preach the gospel first of all when he went in and then uh, if he got booted out he'd go somewhere else. But, but most of the early believers being of Jewish origin, the trouble was is that they carried on some of their Judaistic practices through into their life as Christians, as followers of Christ. Um, this included things like attendance at the synagogue, the offering of sacrifices, observing mosaic dietary taboos, and aloofness also from the Gentiles and thinking we're a little bit better than you because after all we're the chosen ones. <laughs> a bit like Jose Mourinho, you know, I am the special one. Uh, and, and, and this sort of aloofness as Gentile believers came into the church, well, we're, we're, we're the genuine thing, um, but we're not welcoming you in quite the same way as we'd welcome a fellow Jew because we're we're the chosen ones we're the special ones it's easy for us you think but why were they carrying on some of this Judaistic practices you know it's so easy for us to look back now with the value of hindsight and to say well they shouldn't have done that of course we can say that it's so easy to say but put yourself in their shoes They'd got generations and generations, parents, grandparents, great grandparents, it just went on forever. They sort of traced their roots back to, you know, Abraham or, uh, and, and we are the people, this is who we are and we, we've got this revelation now that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but we're still holding on to this because it's our tradition, it's part of what we've believed for centuries, for centuries. And, and, and they, 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 they carried on this um, and so they believed things like you know the issues that were beginning to rise in them uh, within them were things like well uh, we should carry on being circumcised the men should be circumcised and, and practice still a Jewish way of life um, just uh, and Gentile converts should do that too and, um, and really there's like a class system beginning to emerge. Well, we're the Jewish believers and we're special somehow and then there's Gentile believers. And so these so-called Judaizers started insisting that the Gentiles, uh, you know, they'd started doing these things in order to achieve salvation, in order to merit uh, justification. And they, they tried to force them to be circumcised and practice other aspects of Judaism. Um, and, and saying, if you didn't do it, you're not a proper Christian. 
And uh, two passages of scripture in particular provide the answer to, to, you know, should they do that or not. Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, uh, a gathering of church leaders coming together to address this very issue. And, um, and Paul's letter to the Galatians is, is the other big thing that sort of gives the answer to this question. The issue is, is a serious one. It really was a serious issue in the early church. Because if the Judaizers won the day and their message got through of salvation through faith in Christ alone uh, not being sufficient, it would have corrupted, it would have totally subverted the very heart of the gospel. Um, and people would be bound by the restrictive laws of Judaism would never enter the true freedom of God that Christ won for his people at the cross uh, and for this reason Paul is this is Paul is most sort of worked up het up the coffee's kicked in if he had it um, anyway we won't go into that but 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 it's really getting worked up about this he's getting to coin a phrase he's getting really gritty with the Galatians He's saying to them, you stupid Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, you can't go into this. Um, and, and he's really worked up about it because he wants to save the pure gospel of God's free grace as opposed to a gospel of works. And so his arguments are well organised and we're going to look at them. So his introduction... Um, in chapter 1, 1 to 10. So Paul just expresses his astonishment uh, at how quickly they're, they're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Um, it isn't a gospel if you believe in you've got to do something. Uh, and, and so he pours anathema on the ones that are perverting the gospel of Christ. So Galatians 1, 8 to 9. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be anathema, a really strong word. Let him be cursed. Let him be eternally condemned. Um, he's really worked up. And so how is he going to defend it? He's going to first of all defend the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of grace. He defends it first of all autobiographically and in, in, in just giving his own story in chapter 1, 11 to chapter 2, 21. So, and um, he uses his own revelation, his personal experience as a, a weapon to counter this false gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so he explains to them how he'd been a zealous Jew, how he'd adhered to the principles and practices of Judaism. You read that in chapter 1, 13 to 14. How he persecuted the church for departing from those Judaistic principles that were so precious to him. And he knows from personal experience how useless those things are in relation to the message of God's free grace. It's totally different. And his gospel, he calls it his gospel, he explains, because he's taken possession of it. It's something that's precious to him. So he says his gospel uh, is based not on his Judaistic background, uh, but on a direct revelation from Jesus. 
That's what he says in verse 12 of Galatians chapter 1. And he says that direct revelation he didn't discuss with anybody for three years. Uh, only then, after that, did he go to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James for a few days, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. And then a still longer period elapsed, 14 years, during which Paul's gospel became well established without any major influence from the apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, and after this period, in response to a revelation from the Lord, he visited Jerusalem to set before the apostles the gospel he preached to Gentiles, just in case he was in any kind of error, he says in chapter 2, verse 2. I love Paul's humility. You know, sometimes we sort of think, oh, apostle, great, he gets the revelation from Jesus. He didn't tell anybody about it for free. Then he goes to Jerusalem, then he... After speaking with the apostles, he begins to preach this gospel. And 14 years later, he goes back to Jerusalem to the other apostles to make himself accountable. Um, Paul is not some um, papal figure that says, this is it. There's a papal infallacy here. What I say is that he's checking out with others what he believes is a revelation from God. To me, it, I, 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 I get concerned, I suppose, when church... Uh, leaders can suddenly think that they have the revelation and what they think is or say is infallible. Paul didn't think like that. He was working with team. He was working with others in saying, let's work this out together. And um, what's significant, he says, even though he went to school, is there any error here, guys? Is there something wrong? Chapter 2, verse 2. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, they didn't add anything to his message. But they accepted even, you know, sort of conservative side of things. Peter, yeah, it's okay. And he actually goes on to say, you know, that they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Um, this is important. This is really matters. That this gospel that Paul had isn't um, some extra bit. That it's an important. It's accepted by the whole church community, the early church, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship when they saw. They saw the grace given to him. It says in chapter two, verse nine, grace can be seen on people. See the grace of God in you, just studying and working, loving the Lord with all your minds this morning, but there's different levels of grace, there's different measures of grace, but they saw this measure of grace that had been given to Paul and said, this is right, this is, we're giving you the right hand of fellowship, we're not adding anything to that, we're saying it's right and it's proper and it's good. And on the same visit, He's really making this point. Remember, he's arguing autobiographically. He's arguing from that. Uh, let me just finish this point, then I'll come to you. Yep. Um, he, he says, you know, the apostles, he took Titus with him, uh, but the apostles didn't require Titus, uh, who wasn't a Jew, didn't require this Greek to be circumcised. He said, what do you think of that, you Gentiles? He, they, they didn't want him to be circumcised. Who are you arguing for? Who are you arguing on behalf of? And uh, go on, sorry. Yeah, what's your name? Sorry. Mikhail. 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 Yeah. I was just about to um, ask, uh, I, I always wondered how, how did Paul hit the mark straight away? Or, or at least it seems that way that he converted and then he understood the sort of this teachings of, of Christ and how that uh, applies. Yeah. Whereas there's um, I read somewhere in the New Testament there's a there's a Jew uh, and the Egyptian one called Apollos mm. who could 
see Christ in the Old Testament for he had to go from war teaching yeah. which yeah. doesn't, seem, doesn't seem to be the case of Paul yeah. it's all very unfair isn't it <laughs> yeah. No, but, but, but yeah I think, I think what, when you say about Paul hitting the mark straight away I mean, he had this revelation, he had this um, amazing experience on the road to Damascus, didn't he? Um, and, uh, you know, and he had these sort of revelations and sort of the presence of God was something that he, he, he felt and, and, and knew. But going back to the point I was making earlier, remember, he, he didn't tell anyone about it. It's like it percolated within him for a couple of years before he went to Jerusalem and told the apostles what you know, and then there was another 14 years of working it out before he went back to Jerusalem. The danger is when we read our Bibles, we can think it's all instant. And it isn't. It really isn't. And, uh, you know, I just thank God for that because um, otherwise I'd get terribly frustrated and feel as if there's something wrong with me. And I do think there's something wrong with me, but, but, um, but I think there's more wrong with me than I need to think is wrong with me. Um, uh, and... You know, I think sometimes we, we have a tendency, and don't forget there's an enemy that goes around like a prowling lion, seeing and even with our thoughts, we have a tendency, even without the enemy, we, can, we have it built into us in just the culture that we live in, is to, and within the church culture that we live in often, we have it built into us to put ourselves down. Um, and think, oh, I can't be like that, I can't, you know. And, and if you go back to, if you read your Bible, <laughs> if you read your Bible, every day uh, and just get into something you'll begin to understand things take time um, things don't happen um, you know preach a whole sermon on it couldn't we but you know Abraham uh, Moses in the desert you know um, how many years 40 years you, you, you've got these times these lapses of time but nothing seems to be happening and I think it's a good point you raise Mikhail because I think for us in the church today um, we've known sort of um, 1907 sort of the spirit being poured out in Sunderland and uh, uh, yeah, oh, sorry we're going to go into church history now for two minutes but spirit being poured out in Sunderland and you know Pentecostalism emerging following from sort of Azusa Street and in India and Africa and other places like that and um, and we've seen things happen in the you know in the you know in the 19 20s, 19, you know, 1960, the charismatic renewal. Before that, the, the, the out, you know, before the charismatic renewal, the, the emergence of sort of a restoration movement, house churches, new frontiers, Bible weeks, thousands attending, you know, 18,000 attending, you know, Bible weeks, and and then you sort of go into a, then you go into a period where nothing much seems to be happening, um, and you think, oh God, what's going to happen? But for me, I just think, well. It's been a bit of a long time since anything's happened, Lord. <laughs> you feel that there's, something's going to happen again soon. And, um, and, 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 you know, we think, oh, you know, just this latest survey is, um, that come out, hasn't it, sort of a census, the two, results of the 2000. <gasps> First time Britain, you know, um, how, how awful sort of we're no longer a Christian country. Were we ever one anyway? But, but, but we're no longer a Christian country. Cause, but you think, well, um, you know, that, that's good because uh, we can perhaps stand up to the fact that we need to as a church we need to be doing more mission and perhaps reevaluate what mission is but that's for another day anyway but yeah so it wasn't instant it wasn't instant uh, if you look at it there were years going by um, with things happening
And so Paul then goes on, this is just, I'm telling my story, says Paul, so that you can understand what's going on here. And he says how he opposes Peter, um, who was on a visit to Antioch and was forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. And he opposed him and rebuked him, chapter 2, 14, and Peter listened to him. Even though this Peter had been the one who'd walked with Jesus, Peter, if you like, had sort of been a senior apostle, but Peter listens, he's got that willingness. And Paul says, you know, that, that again is evidence that his gospel is right and true and proper. And so as Jews, both Peter and Paul knew that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, because by observing the law, no one will be justified, chapter 2, verse 16. And as such, both Peter and Paul are thus affirming the freedom from the law. And so, having defended it, given his story, and you've got you know, much of uh, Paul's story, life story there, in chapter 3, right through to, to chapter 5, verse 12, he defends this gospel of grace theologically and um, sets you know, a series of theological arguments to defend the gospel of grace. And he starts off by saying to them, look, you, Gentile, you, you Galatians, you began by faith, so why try now to continue your spiritual growth by sweat? Uh, you're born again by grace. You don't grow by sweat. You grow by grace. And he says you've got to attain the goal by continuing to believe the message of the gospel that is not by legalistic observance of Jewish rites. Abraham, he goes on to say, was justified by faith. And the same principle applies to them. You're no different to Abraham. You're justified by faith alone. Um, and he said all if you're relying on the law for uh, your salvation, you're actually under a curse because they, you can't keep it in its entirety. The law would only work if someone could keep it completely. As soon as you break one part of it, it's, it's gone. You see, Christ, though, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, uh, everyone who puts their faith in him, chapter 3, 10 to 14. And then he says, the promise made to Abraham before the Mosaic law, it was before the law that God gave the promise to Abraham, so the law had nothing to do with it, what God said to Abraham. It was not nullified when the law came in. The promise still stood. Um, the law wasn't given to save people, but to direct them in faith to Christ. It says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. We no longer need that tutor, that, the Greek word is paedagogos, someone who used to sort of be very miserable and, and, and sort of directing little children, showing them how they should behave and telling them every time they did something wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It says we're no longer under that sort of miserable supervision because just as in, in, in those days, the paedagogos, the tutor, um, when the father decided that the, 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 the son was mature, um, they'd have a party and the, son, the child would no longer, it could be different ages, 16 to 25 different ages, once you mature we have a celebration party and you're set free from this tutor and the tutor gets the sack. <coughs> And you're no longer having to live under the supervision of this tutor telling you. It never helped you anyway. It was just there telling you, the rich um, 
father would sort of employ a, a you know an educated slave to tell you you're doing something wrong you're doing something wrong and, and th th never really helped you all he did was tell you what you were doing wrong and, and, and Paul's whole message is, is that external tutor of the law that's outside you telling you what you're doing wrong has been replaced now by the internal helper of God the Holy Spirit who empowers you to do what's right because this is salvation as we'll come on to see in Christology uh, this is salvation not just that Jesus died on the cross for forgiveness of sins and rose and ascended but he's poured out the Holy Spirit he's given the helper who helps us to do what's right and achieve that salvation um, so faith in Christ causes us to be adopted that ceremony that we're talking about and, and the Galatians um, you need to realize he says that you're inconsistent you were slaves who found freedom but you're about to go back into slavery again by the teaching of the Judaizers and before making this final theological point he pleads with them to embrace what he's saying in the way they embraced him when he first visited them he describes his anguish for them like being in pains of childbirth as we said earlier on it's like I'm going to have a baby I'm, I'm, my daughter my daughter uh, is, is due a baby sort of um, in the next few weeks and whatever and um, I'm thinking does she know what's coming her way I mean I don't <laughs> but just wonder if she really knows what's happening she's very excited about it but that pain of childbirth sorry I'm just telling you on that um, but so it's what he's saying is if you allow yourselves to be circumcised Christ will be of no value to you um, uh, and that's what he says in chapter 5 verse 2 you, you'll you can't keep the whole law, chapter 5, verse 3. You'll have fallen from grace by seeking to be justified by law-keeping. Um, but Paul's confident that although someone had cut in on them while they were running a good race, they'll again return to living by the truth of the gospel of grace. Um, comments, thoughts... For the Jew, is this an issue for us today? Absolutely. Wendy says absolutely. What sort of things does it go through your mind when you say absolutely, Wendy? Um, it's like I, I need to read my Bible every day, otherwise I'm falling apart. I need to. Yeah. I need to go to church. I need to, absolutely. I need to yes. Yes, yes. No, absolutely. And we do need to do all these things, don't we? <laughs> Sunday notices. Um, let's, yeah, yeah. The, the, sorry, what's your name? Sorry. Peter. Peter. Many years ago, we had a guy saved from drink and drugs and all sorts. And after, after the service, he nipped out of the church, come and smoke And some people were horrified that he was smoking. Um, you know, he said to them, you know, if that's all he's suffering from now, smoking, be thankful. But smoking is, is one of those is one of those things that people treat legalistically. Don't smoke, don't drink, maybe. Yeah. 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 Well some of you are struggling with this. <laughs> um, you see, I think what we've really got to discern, haven't we? Because there's um, Paul, you know, he writes to the Galatians, don't do, you know, it's by faith, not by works, and all of this sort of thing. And then at other times he'll write, you know, the brothers will come on to see, you should have 
come on now, flee from your immorality. There's things that you need to do. Things that if you want to grow, there's things that you should be doing that you need to be doing. And so there's a tension that we sometimes get into as sort of like making a false dichotomy, sort of this sort of making it one or the other. Um, when in actual fact, if we really, really understand what um, freedom from the law means, growth begins to happen by itself if we really grasp it. If you really believe that, hang on, I've been set free from a sinful nature, I've been given a new nature, I'm in Christ, I am a new creation, that I've been brought into, as we're going to see in the second half, he keeps saying, looking at his watch, um, we're going to be brought into this living relationship with Christ, brought in, participating in the divine nature, as he is now, so are we in this world, you know, that the fullness of God dwells in us. When we really begin to understand that, there's, there's something within us, a freedom that emerges, that just our desire is. We've known what it's like to live in sin. Uh, we've known the misery of uh, putting our head on our pillow at night without a clear conscience. And there's something within us that just longs for that joy and freedom of liberty, of the clear conscience of I'm doing what's right, I'm pleasing God. Not to achieve my salvation, never. It's already been done for me. But this is because I'm saved, so I love to spend time in God's Word. I've, it's the best part of the day for me. Uh, just reading slowly through the Bible and, and going through it and praying as I read uh, and spending time in prayer, in playing a worship song or whatever it is I do, that sort of relationship with God instead of what is it that I can do? I'm not, look, I'm not happy. I've discovered something in life. I'm not happy unless everybody around me is happy. Um, I want to make other people happy. And if that's a, a you know, just a normal thing, human thing to do. How much more as believers who are in relationship with our Heavenly Father do we think, I'm not happy unless I'm making Him happy. Um, and so wanting to uh, do certain things isn't because I have to to, uh, to have that relationship with him. It's because I have that relationship with him that I want to please him. I, as Paul puts him, you know, uh, you know, make it your goal to please him in every way. Yeah? And so, um, any, any other comments? Well, just, just let's start, see if we can identify some of these things that can creep in insidiously into, uh, into church life. I mean, we don't get people, as I say, we don't get people at tea and coffee telling us you need to get circumcised. But, 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 but what, what, what do we get? Yeah, what's your name, sorry? John. John. It's not specifically on that, it's more of a general kind of thing, really, I think. If we try and separate out the sort of legalistic elements of you know, the Jewish faith, and see was the precursor and they had the law and everything, but it's, that was their old life. That was what they were doing before they met Jesus, yeah. before they were born again into a new life. And I think that's potentially where we can make problems with that, is if we're looking back to things in our old life for satisfaction or for helping us in some way, when actually we're not, we're in a new life. Yeah. Yeah. So why are we going back to whatever the old thing was? It was the law, because that's what they knew, that's what was comfortable, that's what helped them, you know, if they woke up having a difficult day or whatever. What's the comforting thing that I know? I'm going to go back to that because that will 
help me in some way, or they won't, because you're in a new life now, and you're yep. a new person, and yep. old stuff is gone. Yep, yep. And it's when you're relying on it to give you that satisfaction that God should be giving you instead that you're going to run into problems. Yep, yep. No, that's well said, John. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's so true. It's uh, a great point you make in there. It's the, the comfort, isn't it, of a way of life of, um, you know, it, it's do something to get a reward. Again, though, we sort of, you always have to put the, the caveat in there. There are rewards for those who seek God and love God and whatever. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, but, you know, there, there's this... This, this beauty of entering into uh, a, um, a graceful way of doing that, a grace-filled way of doing that, uh, versus a legalistic way. I mean, the danger isn't is if you forget to read your Bible, as Wendy's saying, you forget to read your Bible one morning, and uh, then you sort of think, no, that's it, I'm under a curse now. Because I'm not really, and then what happens is you try to make it up, or perhaps it's just me who does this. I'll, I'll try to make it up by, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the prayer meeting that nobody goes to. Um, I'll, I'll do that, and that sort of get me some extra points, you know, with God. And then, wow, I did that, had that horrible thought come into my mind the other day. I've got to get that sorted out now. I know what, they've got an outreach on the precinct giving out leaflets, inviting people to a Christmas do. I'll go to that now. That surely got impressive. And we end up spinning plates, don't we? And trying to do so much rather than saying, Lord, thank you that you forgive me and you cleanse me and if he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sorry, I'm going into John now, not Paul. But, um, but we, we, we can do that. And it, it, it all comes down to when we see the gospel is what Jesus, because what we're ending, when we're doing that, what we're saying is, well, thank you, Jesus, for saying at the cross, it is finished. But actually, that was a joke, wasn't it? Because it's not finished, because I've still got some stuff to do. And you think, well, you haven't, says Paul. You really haven't. He meant it when he said it's finished. And so when he said it is finished, the whole work of salvation, which isn't just about past sins being forgiven, but it's about a new way of life, as John said. It's about a new way of life, freedom, liberty from the law, where you come into a relationship with him. Where I want to please you, Lord. And it's just... I'm, I'm Father God, I'm your son, I'm your daughter, I want to please you, therefore I'm looking, finding out what pleases you, and it's done with a different motivation, works are done. I don't find workless grace anywhere in my Bible, I find where grace is at work, there are works that follow, um, but they're not works to achieve something, they're works as a result. Paul puts it better than me, let's get back to this and finish off Galatians. Um, you know, just look at and Galatians 5, um, you know, 24, 25. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, uh, the sinful nature, uh, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Um, and so there's this longing, you know, what is it? The fruits of the flesh, we're not going to look at them now because we... we, we need to move on but the flute, fruit of the flesh is contrasted isn't it with the fruit of you know fruit of the flesh sexual immorality impurity debauchery idolatry witchcraft hatred discord jealousy fits of rage selfish ambition 
dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. Some of them seem extreme, some of them are very close to what we can experience. And he said, those, that's the fruit of the flesh. That's when you're living in the flesh, but you've crucified all that. So the fruit of the Spirit, those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those fruits, have a look at your own life and say, what, what do people, you know, those that are, put yourself in the shoes of the people that are closest to you. Not people you just see, you know, having tea and coffee on a Sunday. Well, I keep going on about tea and coffee on a Sunday, I don't know. But, but, you know, people who know you really, really well in the family, those closest to you, do they see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? That isn't something you work at. That's something that comes with the fruit as you live in relationship to God and keep in step with the Spirit. Knowing, experiencing, knowing God the Holy Spirit as your best friend. Um, so Paul finishes Galatians 6, 11 to 18. He exposes the dubious motives of the Judaizers. They want the Galatians to be circumcised so that they will look good and avoid persecution by other Jews, he says in chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, but he says, in the end, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. John was ahead of us there. The revelation, you know, is... Wherever self-effort is placed above faith in the grace of God, you know, it, it's the regulations. It's not that. It's the grace of God that counts. Um, we're not going to do the, the recap moment because we don't need to. Um, so we're going to switch on to the prison epistles and Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and... Um, those three. Any, any questions on Galatians? I'm not worried if we don't do it all, but I just think Galatians is such an important... I know we've spent far more time on Galatians than we will on the rest, but I think it's so important. I think we've covered it. Yeah, okay. So the prison... If you're following in your notes, we're on 5.0. So looking at Philippians 5.1, the background to Philippians. Um, so, as we said, it was... Uh, Philippians is the one prison epistle that was sent out separately from the three others which were sent out together but it's Philippians is, is basically um, somebody said didn't they, about having a note, uh, a thank you note wasn't it? Uh, Philippians is an extended thank you note uh, for the support and generosity of the church in Philippi um, and it's written in a very sort of informal unstructured way and you're not best sort of trying to pretend to put it into sort of do some very clever um, analysis of Philippians. It's just looking at some main themes that are in it. Um, and so just going on to, um, you know, it, it's, well, let's just say a little bit about Philippi. Major city in the Roman province of Macedonia. Um, and uh, you can read, you've got stuff in your notes there. It was a military rather than a commercial centre. Um, there weren't many Jews in Philippi. Um, he, he, Paul didn't go when he first went to Philippi and founded a church. He didn't do what he normally did, which we said was to go to a synagogue and start explaining the gospel to a synagogue. Instead, when he went to Philippi, he went to a place of prayer by a river. And um, that's where, if you remember Acts 16, uh, he found this Jewish 
place of prayer and Lydia uh, became a Christian and a church was born through that encounter at a place of prayer by the river and uh, I'd love to see the DVD of some of these places see what the you know the river was like and so on but but 11 um, but continue the Christians continued to meet it sounds a bit idyllic really outside the city uh, by the river uh, for an unknown period and um, I mean, I love this. I, 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 as uh, you know, I said, sort of at the moment, working for a theological college training Anglican vicars, and one of the things we struggle with is trying to get them to understand the church is not the building. <laughs> it's, it, it, it can be an uphill climb that at times. Don't tell them I said that. But um, but 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 it's, here we are. They're meeting by a river, and um, Paul and Silas, you know, were imprisoned, put in prison. Um, after they cast out uh, a fortune-telling spirit, evil spirit from a slave girl, and they sang and prayed, remember, in the jail, earthquake, earthquake um, loosened, and as a result, cut a long story short, the prison guard and all his family were saved and baptised, um, and the authorities then released Paul and Silas, and Paul went to Philippi for a second time, returned on his third missionary journey and now 11 years after his first visit when Lydia had become a Christian uh, he's imprisoned in Rome and the Philippian church have sent an envoy they've sent Epaphroditus uh, with their greetings and some financial help uh, here you are Paul we understand you're struggling here's a bit of finance for you and here's Epaphroditus and we know from 4 verse 16 this wasn't a one-off they'd been doing it down the years providing for him financially and Epaphroditus bless him on going on this journey he'd become ill and nearly died and Paul was now sending him back to the church he'd been fully restored to health no such talk of a miraculous healing but just he'd been fully restored to health and he was carrying this letter of thanks which is what we can read. We really are reading other people's mail, aren't we, when we, we read these epistles. Um, so, Philippians, as we said, a really personal letter, most personal of Paul's letters. Just think he loved the Galatians in one way, he loves the Philippians in another way, but it's all the love of Christ coming through him. And obviously he's got this very close relationship with the church who'd supported him over many years. And he says thank you for their support, uh, is, but he takes the opportunity in this thank you note it's a longer thank you note than you had um, because he takes the opportunity to encourage them and, um, and warns them again against, against the influence of Judaizers and um, so we're not going for a, some clever overview pattern but you can read through uh, some of the main themes as joy uh, is in it you know I'll continue to rejoice uh, you know he, every time he's full of joy every time he thinks of them in 1 verse 3 1 verse 18 he's full of joy because the gospel I'm so glad you're just carrying on the gospel's continuing to be preached I'm full of joy because I know I'm going to be released I'm full of joy because I, I see humility growing in, in, in the church there I'm full of joy because of you, you know my personal sacrifice for Christ is giving me joy yeah I'm in prison I'm in chains but you know what this is something I'm doing for him and it gives me joy and um, and I'm full of joy for the gifts you've sent and the goodwill that you've expressed through Epaphroditus coming to me even though he nearly died um, but but he's not content just to be say to them I'm full of joy for myself he tells them I want you to be full of joy too 
So he says to them, Philippians 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice in Philippians 4, verse 4. And so he wants their rejoicing to be in the Lord. Um, just not about your circumstances. Our joy is in God not in our circumstances. And, you know, Jesus knew what it was to rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God, by the way. Uh, and, you know, that's where we find our joy is in God himself. Challenge to us all as we're coming up to Christmas time, isn't it, is what gives us joy. Oh, we're celebrating, the, are we really celebrating the birth of Jesus? Or what are we doing? You know, wh whatever it is, our joy is to be in God. And then the second thing, so joy is one theme. Second theme is attitude and just encourage them have the same attitude as Jesus Christ there's a challenge for you which is one of absolute humility not putting yourself first putting others before yourself um, if you got human success um, just see it as absolute rubbish have an attitude towards human success that sees it as rubbish compared it might be good but it's rubbish and there's a good anglo-saxon word which i won't offend you with but 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 see it as as that uh, compared to the surpassing greatness of uh, you know knowing christ this is what really matters it's what we were saying earlier on just this i want to know him i want to please him um, I, I just want this clear conscience of day by day living in his presence um, and be willing to share in Christ's sufferings so that you can share in his resurrection. Hey, sufferings might come, guys, but you just have this joy, this attitude. If I'm sharing in his sufferings, I'm going to share in his resurrection. And just total commitment to reaching the heavenly goal that should characterize all believers. Um, you know, and he, he gives this important statement talking about attitudes, just your thought life. It says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things um, so uh, you know these attitudes are important and he he tells them that the gospel um, you know it uses that term 533 I'm looking at is, is the body of truth that he has preached and that he expects all the Philippians to live out. He rejoices in their partnership, koinonia, their partnership in the gospel, and that his chains have served to advance the gospel, and he confirms the gospel in his lifestyle, and, uh, and on he goes just talking about the gospel. It's, it's a letter from prison that's far, you know, he's in prison, but this is a letter that is a million miles away from being pessimistic. It just is full of joy, love, and thanks for partnership in the gospel of a faithful church in Philippi. Real sort of point of application for our lives is, is this whole question which we were just talking about, is where do we find our joy? Paul found his joy in God. Um, even though he went through difficulties, trials, and tribulations, that was where he found his joy. I'm going to move straight on to Colossians, because I'm going to do this as the last one in this section, and we'll have a longer break, um, and I'll leave you to look through the notes on some of the other uh, letters. But Colossians, I really want to mention Colossians, because it's a good introduction to what we're going to be doing in the second half, because it's uh, so much about Jesus. Um, Colossae. Uh, minor importance as a city, about 150 kilometres east of Ephesus, uh, just located in a fertile river valley, um, and uh, just 
you know, Paul's time, just the, the neighbouring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis were, were larger and much more important. Uh, Paul had never visited Colossae, so here he is writing to church that he's never visited. The church had been founded by one of his co-workers, Epaphras, we know from 1 verse 7, and that it probably taken place when Paul was not too far away during his extended stay in Ephesus, uh, from which helpers had evangelized the whole province of Asia. So here he is writing to a church he's never visited, and um, Epaphras was with Paul in Rome, and we know that from 4 verse 12, and might actually have been in prison with him. We get that from Philemon 123. Um, this letter was carried by Tychicus, uh, who accompanied uh, the converted slave Onesimus on his return to his master Philemon. Um, so Epaphras, who'd founded the church, had gone to Paul and told Paul what was happening in the Colossian church. And um, Paul used the occasion of Onesimus and Tychicus going back towards, um, in the direction of Colossae, to send this letter of exhortation, it is really, of a real encouragement to them. Uh, it contains references to what has become known as the Colossian heresy. Um, in, in, in many ways it's a twin to the book of the letter of Ephesians and you see similarities between the two um, it was written about the same time as Ephesians and delivered en route by Tychicus and the two cover much common ground so starting you know, chapter 1 verse 1 through to chapter 2 verse 3 it's 2 verse 23 it's just that whole section is about the preeminence of Christ. Um, so after his normal type of introductory greeting, his prayer for the church is that they might be filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding uh, so that they might truly live a life worthy of the Lord. Uh, this isn't legalism. This is, this is my prayer for you. That, wow, you're living a life that's worthy of the Lord. So, you know, he describes in, in, those, in that opening section just the supreme wisdom of God in Christ. Um, how this should affect the way Christians live. And um, Paul just portrays Christ as preeminent in creation in his capacity as both the creator and the one who holds all things together by his word. Um, he says he's preeminent in the work of redemption, shedding his blood to reconcile humanity to God. He's preeminent in the church where, God, where Paul labours for Christ to be fully formed in them just as he wanted to see Christ formed in the Galatians. He wants to see Christ formed in the Colossians. So Christ, Paul says, is the only answer to the heresy that some had entertained. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Christ is 100% God. And you've been given fullness in Christ. Um, chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Uh, all you need is Christ. You don't need the pitiful alternatives on offer, sort of those fine-sounding arguments, chapter 2, verse 4. Human tradition, chapter 2, verse 8. Legalistic rituals, chapter 2, 11 to 17. Mysticism, chapter 2, 18 to 9. Or asceticism, chapter 2, 20 to 23. Um, these 
had all been combined in what we call the Colossian heresy, uh, a deceptive philosophy, he calls it in chapter 2, verse 8, which was a blend of Jewish legalism and Greek philosophical speculation and oriental mysticism. Uh, it had been an early form of Gnosticism that took hold strongly in the second century after Christ. Um, whatever its composition, the antidote was for the church to fully understand the full and complete work of Christ. And we're going to look at this sort of what Gnosticism is in, in, in the second half. But, you know, just understanding what Christ, who Christ is and what he's done. And so in the second half, often you find in Paul's letters the first half are, are more theological or doctrinal and the second half are sort of very practical. So he goes on in the second half in Colossians following that model to talk about um, the practice of the Christian life. Colossians 3, 1 to 3, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And um, so because of this work of Christ, their hearts and minds were to be set on him and their lives demonstrate the fruit of life in Christ. They've got to put to death what belongs to their earthly nature. There is something to do. This is what we keep saying is, is grace and works aren't you know aren't at different ends of the truth. Grace and works go together but it's grace establishes the works that we do in grace. So we put to death by grace things that are contrary to the nature of Christ. Um, putting off the old self with its practices and putting on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator. There's to be unity and peace is, is the hallmarks of the community. Um, and you know family relationships, work relationships, church relationships, the way they deal with outsiders, unity and peace and in their conversation. And the final paragraphs of Colossians just describe the events behind the writing of a letter and with further greetings. And Paul, you know, tells them, remember my chains. Um, he's writing in letters. Yeah, I think at times he, Paul did feel discouraged. And, uh, you know, there's consolation we can take from that when we feel discouraged. If we're not the only ones to feel that way. It's okay not to feel okay, as people say. But the, Paul felt like this. And um, so, But in Colossians, what we've got overall is this thoroughly Christ-centered exhortation to work out the fullness of our salvation in, in, in how, you know, the practical aspects of life. I really am sorry, but I knew this was going to happen. Um, we're not going to have time to go through the other letters, but I, you've got the, the notes there. I would recommend to you as well, and I put it somewhere, I think, at the end of the notes, just um, you, you've got uh, the Bible Project. If you ever want to look at a book, the, the Bible Project videos are absolutely brilliant in the pictures and whatever. And, uh, and um, yeah, I'm not going to say you needn't have come this morning you could have looked at it on video but but you've got the bible project these are great for just if you I, I sometimes just in my daily reading of the bible when i start a new book is spend five or six minutes watching a bible project video and sort of sets me up nicely then for reading the book um, so lord we just pray that even though we've rushed it uh, a bit we pray that Holy Spirit, you'll just blow away the chaff and what, what isn't really necessary for us to remember, but we pray you'll feel it in our hearts, things that you might have spoken to us, even as we've 
um, gone through at a pace some of Paul's life and some of the letters that he's written. We pray make this useful and helpful to us in our growth, in Christian maturity, in, uh, in our love for you, in our love for one another. We just ask this in your name. Amen.